Father, how great our opportunity to meditate on Your Word and to learn something fresh, to learn something new every time we approach it. Even after decades of of meditation and, and pondering these words, to still discover and to still be impacted, Father, is, is, is a great blessing from Your Spirit and from Your Word. We pray that as we delve into these words that that these words will not only be heard in our mind but but will be felt in our heart that we will have a right imagination in our mind's eye of these scenes and to hear correctly these words and exchanges and interchanges between Jesus and all of these people that He encounters. To this end, we we pray, as we always do, Father, that You will bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray not only for that, but for a great humility to come into our hearts and into our minds. A, A humility that allows us to shudder and to stagger not only from from the weight of the truth, of the reality of these words, but but to but to find ourselves not not just amazed, but but renewed in our convictions, Father, because of of how these words of how these words impact the totality of our being. We truly are not our own. We've truly been bought with a price. Our redemption has not come cheaply. Our forgiveness has cost greatly. And and we pray not, not to ever allow our lives to stray from these truths. And so we pray, Father, to be great stewards of these ancient texts and to treasure them in our hearts and minds at all times, and to live with them, Father, as You would have us live with them. Bless us, and thank You for Luke's Gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. By the time that we get to Luke chapter 23, and specifically this text that Lynn has read for us, the King King Jesus has has come, and He has been betrayed, He has been arrested, He has been tried, He has been cruelly, and and really without uh, a lot of success verbally, He he has been beaten uh, in a way that sort of defies and is beyond description. He has been beaten within an inch of His life. And, and now he is going to his execution. 
And along the way, the king meets different individuals. He encounters different groups of people. There's Simon of Cyrene, the, woman, the women that he refers to as the daughters of Jerusalem. There are the crowds at the cross, and then there are the two thieves, the criminals between which he is crucified. But in all of these encounters, and these are not all of them, these are just the major ones that we're going to lift from the text and study uh, tonight, there is a controlling theme throughout the crucifixion, and it's found in one of his last prayers. It's when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The first one we'll look at is Simon of Cyrene. Crucifixions were not something new to the world, and, and, and in fact, believe it or not, there are crucifixions that have existed even into the last 100 years of the modern world in which we believe that we live in. But crucifixions were known in the ancient world among the Seleucids, uh, Seleucids among the Carthaginian kingdom. But Rome was the one that really was the perfecter of the craft. And for the Romans, crucifixion fulfilled two purposes for the empire. The first was to punish people of, of the deepest, most hein heinous crimes against that empire. It was to punish, and punish it did. There was no escape from it. It was a cruel way to die. And the second was to teach. Uh, crucifixions were public. There's a, there's a story that is told um, that when the movie, the, 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 um, the Handmaid's Tale, was being filmed, it was filmed uh, on the Duke University campus there in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, the Duke Chapel is a, is a very beautiful place. And there's, uh, I've never seen the movie, but there is a scene in the story where uh, gallows are erected. And, uh, and that's what they did in the movie. And there are these gallows that are built, life, you know, life-size working gallows that were constructed right outside of the Duke Chapel. And as people were going into the chapel... Uh, in fact, the, the part of the story is, is that there was a wedding that took place, and as everybody was going to the, to the chapel for the wedding, they were looking at the gallows. And people were writing letters uh, to, the, to the dean. They were writing it to, to the president. It even made it into the papers how people were so offended that these gallows were outside the doors of the Duke Chapel. And they were saying how inappropriate it was. It, just, it wasn't appropriate to have gallows like that where people would get hung, outside, hanged outside the Duke Chapel. And uh, one of the religious professors, a very famous fellow by the name of William Williman, wrote, do they not realize that every time they go into that chapel, there is a cross hanging there? And, and, and part of what has been lost on us when it comes to the crucifixion is that th this was, was a cruel way to die, and it was a public way to die. And the lesson, because it was public and because it was cruel, was don't let this happen to you. Cicero was so disgusted by what he saw in the crucifixions there in and around Rome that he said it is the cruel and most disgusting punishment known to man. He also said that the very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body but also from his mind and his eyes and his ears. Crucifixion was the worst way to die. And, and here is how the lesson was taught. The, the posts were taken to the place of, of, the, of the crucifixion, the site of execution. And the condemned man had to carry the crossbeam. It was also called the patibulum. 
The, the entire cross probably weighed around 300 pounds. The patibulum, that crossbar, weighed about 100 pounds. And the condemned man who had been beaten was to carry that through the streets to the place of execution. That way, everybody got in on seeing what was happening to this man who created uh, a, such, a, such havoc in the empire or was under such guilt in the eyes of the empire. And when we get to Jerusalem into the time of Jesus Christ and His trial and His, His execution, He has been beaten so brutally and has lost so much blood and is so exhausted that He is unable to carry this patibulum. And so here is this fellow that they find in the crowd. He looks like he's a pretty strong fellow. His name is Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in what would be modern-day Libya today. He has traveled a long way to get to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, to Israel. They grab Simon of Cyrene, and he is compelled to carry it for Jesus. Now, this little fact about Simon carrying the cross is one of the reasons why nearly every scholar believes that this happened the way that it was written. Ancient legends, legends in the ancient world, were not written with this kind of detail. We think that they were because that's the way that stories are written today. The more detail, the more minutia that you find in a story, the more realistic that it becomes. That's not the way that it was, it was done in the ancient world. There was no reason to add this little note about Simon of Cyrene unless it happened. Again, these details are in no way a part of the way ancient legends were put together. The Gospel of Mark adds this little note as well about Simon. Mark 15, verse 21, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. That, that little phrase about being the father of Alexander and Rufus only makes sense if the people that Mark is writing to know Alexander and Rufus, the children of Simon of Cyrene. Now, maybe or not he is a believer. He's probably not. He comes from far away. He is from Libya. He is from the city of Cyrene. It also says that he is just passing through the country. He's just passing through. But Simon saw all of these encounters between Jesus and the other people. He heard all of Jesus' comments. He saw, watched Jesus being hoisted up on the cross. Saw how he comported himself up on that cross and heard the taunts and the mocks from the crowd at the foot of the cross and the way that Jesus handled all of that. And it made a lasting impression on Simon. And this Simon from Cyrene had his life changed and that of his two boys and, and, and probably told this story for the rest of his life. The fact that he carried the cross beam for the Creator of the universe to the place where He was sacrificed for all of our sins. Which leads us to, to the second group, the daughters of Jerusalem. When you read Luke's Gospel, He's always lifting up the women in Luke's Gospel. And in fact, in none of the Gospels are there women that are hostile towards Jesus. John the Baptist, yes, but not to Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 3, Luke writes about how the women were supporting Jesus from their own means. All of the men might forsake Jesus. They might flee from Him when the, when the going gets tough. But the women cry. The women cry when they see Him suffer. And, and Jesus speaks to them. And Jesus' words are not meant to be a rebuke to these women in Jerusalem, no, nor is He sort of spitefully rejecting or sliding their sympathy towards Him. Jesus does not call down curses on the heads of His enemies the way that the, the martyrs, uh, during the, the, uh, the, the, the war with Rome, the way that they would call down curses upon their enemies. 
what Jesus is doing is still trying to embrace them. This quote comes from Hosea chapter 10 and verse 8. And it says, Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us on, on, and, on to, and to the hills, Cover us. The context of Hosea chapter 10 is very, very interesting. As you know, Hosea is, is, has gone north to those ten tribes that have, have apostatized from, from, from God in the north part of Israel. The kingdom is now split. And those northern ten tribes are so corrupted by sin, and Amos says this as, as well, <clears throat> they have become so corrupted by sin, they have strayed so far from Torah that they cannot tell the difference between the God of heaven and an idol. And in chapter 10 and verse 5, Hosea says that even when they go to a place like Beth Avin, which means house of wickedness, 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 which was sort of a scornful nickname for Bethel, and very ironic, Bethel is the house of God. Hosea calls it the house of wickedness. That when they go to this place to worship the golden calf, they will tremble before this idol, but they don't tremble before God. And Hosea says that judgment will come and when the people come to their senses in that judgment, they will want to die because they had not seen the reality of God but had followed the lie of the idols. And in their thinking, it will seem better to be crushed by falling, falling rocks dislodged from the side of a mountain by an earthquake than to suffer the captivity and to be haunted with the stupidity of their belief in false gods. That's where Jesus quotes from Hosea. Now, evidently, these women are, are not... They, they are sympathizing with Jesus' plight. They, they are not believers, but sympathizers. They weep because He has been brutalized, but they do not see Him as God. And Jesus, in these last moments of His life, in fact, in the only words that are recorded between Pilate and the crucifixion, Jesus is trying to get these women to see Him for who He truly is, to recognize Him as God and to tremble before what they see and to repent and to escape a greater judgment down the road. Which brings us to the crowds in general, the crowds at the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verses 36 and 37, the soldiers... Uh, also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vigor, vinegar, and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there are other crowds, uh, other members of the crowd that, are, that are, are shouting at him, and Jesus doesn't answer them. They do not get a Savior. They do not understand. They do not perceive a Savior who has come in weakness because they do not see their own need and what it is that He is accomplishing. If they did, they would not tempt Him to come down from that cross. I mean, think for a moment. If, if they had tempted Him to come down from that cross and he, had, he, had, he was compelled to do it, He complied. How would He have come down from that cross? Speculation. But is that the moment when the 10,000 angels would have come and, and saved Him? And coming down off of that cross, not as a sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world, but coming down in vengeance on His enemies because of their taunts, would He not have come down as their judge? Listen, it is, it is not the nails that kept Jesus on the cross but his vision for the mission that God has given him as well as his love for mankind. Which then leaves us the thieves on the cross. First thief, very common. 
way of thinking. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, He says, hey, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. This is how He's going to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Save yourself and, 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 and save us with you. I mean, everybody has prayed this prayer at one moment in their life. Prove yourself, God, by getting me out of this mess. Everyone at some point in life I know that I have, get me out of this and I'll know that you're there. Prove to me, show to me, manifest yourself in a way by getting me out of this mess. But Jesus doesn't say anything to the crowds. He doesn't say anything to this thief. And like the crowd, he doesn't understand that the only hope that he has is if Jesus stays on that cross. Basically what the thief, the first thief is saying is, I will know that you are God if you make my life go in the direction that I think it will go. Save me, and I'll know you're there. And the argument is based on this premise. A, I know how my life should go. B, if there is a God, He will know this too. And C, if my life is different, then if my life is no different, then He is either a bad God or He is a no God. And the irony here with the first thief on the cross is that he truly, the reason he's on the cross is because he doesn't know how his life should go. Which brings us to the second thief who says a couple of really incredible things that maybe I never fully have seen until this week. First thing he says, Luke chapter 23, verse 41, we are punished justly for what we're getting, uh, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, that this man has done nothing wrong. So he doesn't have the typical human response. He's saying, I deserve what I'm getting. Which is quite an incredible thing to say when you're in that kind of pain and that kind of agony yourself. And then he says what I think is one of the most incredible statements in, in, in Luke's Gospel. He says in verse 42, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is tremendous about that is that here is this thief who knows that he's getting what he deserves. But he perceives something about Jesus. The second thief sees a future for Jesus even as Jesus is dying. The second thief sees a kingdom for Jesus even as Jesus is dying. Which means that in some form or fashion he perceives in some sense the gospel. What he's saying is, I know I'm lost. I know that I've committed these crimes and, and I know that I'm lost and, and I'm dying and it is final except that I might have hope to be with you. And I want to be with you. Remember me. I, I think that that is one of the most phenomenal expressions of faith that I've heard in a long time. And here's Jesus on the cross 
who has been beaten to a pulp. If you read Isaiah 53, what Isaiah prophesies in the future that will happen to Jesus is that He will be so beaten that men will turn their faces from Him. He will be unrecognizable. He cannot carry His patibulum. Simon of Cyrene has to carry it for Him. And, and, and this thief is in his own agony. This thief is having to deal with his own mortality. He's having to deal with his own sins. He's having to deal with the fact that in, in, in a day or, or two, he is going to be gone from this life. And even in the midst of that kind of a circumstance, he is able to see, perceive in Jesus a kingdom and a future and the possibility of a hope. And in saying, I deserve what I'm getting. This man has done nothing wrong. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, remember me. Is in some sense the gospel. I'm lost and it's final. Except the hope that I have to be with you. Remember me. And Jesus makes it so. And Jesus makes it so. I think about that prayer, that, that controlling theme throughout uh, this chapter. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, here's Simon, who's just walking by. He's passing through the country. He's a foreigner. He stumbles into the wrong place at the wrong time in his own thinking. But he turns out to be the man who, is, who carries the crossbeam of Jesus. And he's spiritually awake enough to perceive what's going on as Jesus encounters the, uh, the, the daughters of Jerusalem. And these daughters of Jerusalem, they, 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 they don't know what they're seeing. That's why Jesus quotes from Hosea chapter 10. They don't tremble for, before the true, the true God. They're sympathizing with Jesus in His human form being beaten to a pulp. But they do not see what it is that is before them. If they did, they would repent and escape that greater judgment. The same way that Hosea said, repent and see who the true God is, and that way you will escape the judgment that is coming in 721 at the hands of the Assyrians. And then there are those crowds and those soldiers at the foot of the cross who mock Him and taunt Him and say all manner of temptation to Him in order to get Him down off of that cross as if they really believed that that was possible. Not spiritually awake, not spiritually sensitive either. Only seeing somebody that looks like they're guilty, looks like somebody that is vulnerable to the hand of Rome, looks like somebody that's going to die. He says He's the Messiah. What a joke! They're not expecting a Messiah to come in weakness because they don't see their need, nor do they understand, understand the Scripture. They're spiritually dead. They're spiritually asleep. And then there's that thief. Like all of us, at one point in our lives, you know, hey, I'll know you're there, God, if you'll save me, if you'll make my life go the way that I think it should go. If you do that, then I know that you're God. If not, then you're a bad God or you're no God at all. Not very spiritually sensitive. You know, a lot of times we, we come to the Messiah, we come to God, we come to the church, we come to, to God's kingdom, we come to His Word looking for an answer to the problem. And once that problem, little problem, footnote problem really to the reality and the e eternality of our life, it's just really a kind of a footnote, that problem. But as soon as we find the answer to that problem, then we're ready to move on because we've not encountered spiritually sensitive to the fact that we are in the presence of God Himself. But then you got that second thief. 
He says, I'm lost. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm getting what I deserve. And the only way out of this, out of its finality, out of this sentence, is by the grace that Christ will remember me. And through faith, sees a future for that Christ, even while the Christ is dying. Sees a kingdom for that Christ, even when that Christ, through that kind of faith, through that kind of sensitivity, spiritually speaking, He says, remember me. Remember me. We have to ask ourselves from time to time. Because of the danger of becoming dull of hearing, are we spiritually sensitive? Are we spiritually awake? Are, are, we, are, we, are we staying spiritually open to the Word of God in such a way that it speaks to us with such freshness and profoundness that we find ourselves not just being changed, but transformed? That we find ourselves being moved at, 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 at the pitiful, feeble imaginings of our own minds that will never do justice to the true scene that's painted for us in Scripture that was really 2,000 years ago, a reality? Do we find ourselves being moved to the point of tears and, 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 and of a love for the fact that God loved us first this way? Do we know what we're doing? Do we know what we're doing? You know, if there's any way that our church can, can minister to you tonight, we have an invitation. We're going to sing a song. And some of our shepherds are going to come down here to the front. If tonight you, you feel the stirrings of, 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 of the gospel in your heart in such a way that you've never given yourself fully to, to God, to, to, God's, to God's will, to obedience, to God's way and to God's will for your life, and, and you see that, that like that second thief, you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're lost and that it's final. And there's no way out of it. Try as you may to live a life that is, that is perfect so that you can come out from under judgment. You know that you can't do it. The only way out is to accept that gift, His death instead of yours, through faith. To be baptized by sins washed away, by participating in His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, that you too will be remembered in that kingdom in the future. Or it may be that you find yourself growing a little bit dull in your hearing, dull in your seeing. And your heart has been a little frosted. Maybe not completely iced, but a little frosted. And, and cold when it comes to the presence of God. And especially the love of God as it's manifested in the cross. And what you would like more than anything else is for the heat of the prayers of the church to go up to heaven and to warm your heart and for God's Spirit to, to move again in your heart as you apply your mind to Scripture and to prayer and to fellowship and to God's will.